Genesis chapter 11 in our Bibles. We'll pick up right where we left off, and it's just encouraging to see God's people come, the Bible in their hands, not to be entertained, not to see some dog and pony show or whatever, but just because you want to learn more about God. And of course, the foundations, as we've been studying, are vital to understanding the rest of Scripture, of course, and of God's will. Genesis 11, verse 30 says, But Sarah was barren, she had no child, and Terah took Abram his son. Now, on occasion, you're going to hear me say Abraham, and just be patient with me, they're the same name, um, as you'll find later in the weeks ahead. And Terah took Abram his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his son's son, and Sarah, his daughter-in-law, and his son Abram's wife, and they went forth with them from Ur of the Chaldees to go into the land of Canaan. And they came unto Haran and dwelt there, and the days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Now the Lord had said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country, and from thy kindred, and from thy father's house, unto a land that I will show thee. Father, please help us tonight to focus and hear and be sensitive to the leading of your spirit in this precious and powerful book, The Living Word of God. I pray we will learn things. I pray we'll be reminded of things so that we will recognize that the key to all of Scripture is the just shall live by faith. Speak to our hearts, please, in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, one of the things we noted in last week's study here in Foundations concerned all of the reasons why this little teeny tiny piece of land, this little nation called Israel, remains the focal point of what has happened and really what is happening throughout the world. And it remains that way, if you know the book of Revelation, all the way to the very end. And, you know, those reasons all begin when God looks down and he calls the son of Noah, Shem, one of his, designates one of his descendants, that's what happens, Shem, it will be through him, one of his descendants, it will be Abraham, that will be the foundation of a new and chosen people. And again, you'll remember that if that never happened, you just think about, is the Bible true? Is it real? I mean, this happened thousands of years ago. Had that never happened, what would be different in the world? I mean, we would have no Old Testament, no law, no prophets, no Psalms. We would have no New Testament, no Gospels, no Sermon on the Mount, no book of Revelation, and think about all the things that come out of the book of Revelation, the movies and the books and the, and the, and the lore and so forth, just from that one book alone. There will be no David, no Moses, no Israel, no Jesus, no apostles, no Christianity, no Leonardo da Vinci, no Renaissance, no Christopher Columbus, no Peter or James or John or Mary or a church or a cross or Easter or Christmas. These would be unheard of. Handel's Messiah wouldn't exist. Carols, baptism, communion, pilgrims, the Lord's Prayer, Amazing Grace, David Livingston, Hudson Taylor, the Great Awakening. There would be no America at all, not as we know it. No Passover, no Gideons, no Pilgrim's Progress, no Red Cross. No pastors. I mean, that's sad. <laughs> I'd have to settle for that PGA Tour male model triathlete that I've, been, that I've been saying no to all these years. But think about that. Nothing in the entire world would be the same if God had not called one man, prophesied about it to Noah, including the irrational sort of ancient hatred for this little tiny nation and its people. 
And let me just say that's not because the hatred, the animosity is not because A Abraham or Abram was awesome. It wasn't because he was perfect. His father, of course, was an idolater, as was he at the beginning. Him, Abram himself, nothing special, nothing inherently virtuous, even after God called him, as we'll see in just a moment. It's simply what God called him to do, combined with the fact that he responded in faith that has made all of the difference in the world. You know, one of the things our Lord taught and that all the epistles emphasize and teach as well is that when you become a Christian, the whole idea of when someone is saved, they are also born again. They are becoming someone, something new. Jesus told Nicodemus about the new birth, as you know, being born again. Paul talked very powerfully about becoming a new creature. Peter talked about a Christian being having both an old nature and then now a new, a brand new nature, a new destination, which ultimately leads to a whole new eternity, a new Jerusalem, and so it goes. It is not surprising then to find that when God calls Abram to leave Ur of the Chaldees, that what he's calling him to do is a whole new life. He is the father, for a reason, called the father of the faithful. And the new life is in three areas. And I want you to see this first before we go on. Look at verse 1. The Lord had said unto Abram, get thee out of, here it is, number one is thy country. And I may have had you underline these in the past. Out of thy country, and from thy kindred, and from thy father's house. Now folks, when you think about those three specific things God mentions, it's, it's really clear through the remainder of Scripture, that they each represent what, what God has called a new believer, a new creature in Christ to do as well. For example, when God says the first thing in verse 1, get thee out of thy country, think about that for a minute. He was telling Abraham right off the bat he was going to have a new identity. You know this, that a person's country, and especially so in ancient days in his times and so forth, that person's nation determined that person's identity. Abraham was a Chaldean. His father was a Chaldean. His father's father was a Chaldean in chapter 11. Just look backwards a little bit to verse 28. And Haran died before his father Terah in the land of his nativity in Ur of the Chaldees. And so it is that almost all cultures in this world, even in re recent history, that a person's identity is most associated with his nationality. If you don't believe it, you get on a plane and you, tonight and you go to Brazil, you go to China, you go to Iraq, you go to Japan, and when they see you and when they hear you talk, you are more than anything else, what? An American. Your whole identity to them is you're an American. In the Second World War, the, the Englishmen were told to be British above all things, be British when you go off to war, and so it goes. And even within America, people will find their identity more defined by their homeland. I'm a Southerner, or I'm a Texan, or I'm from Joyce, or, or I'm a Gator, I'm a Knoll. You know, everybody wants this identity of where they're from. There are people who still fight wars right now. They plant bombs, they kill each other. They assassinate uh, rivals by blowing up their airplanes all because of a national identity. So think then about what God is telling Abraham to do, actually. Get thee out of thy country. 
It was his country. It's who he was at what he was. And why did he want him to get out of his country so he could go and, and spread the news of Chaldee to other people so that he would visit other countries, so that he would learn new trade routes, and so he could be an ambassador, the ambassador of Ur to the Canaanites or to the Egyptians? No. Remember, God is calling this man. God has a, a, a long-term purpose for all of this. The last line of verse 1 says, Unto a land that I will show thee, and I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee and make thy name great. Here it is. And thou shalt be a blessing. What nation is he calling him to? A whole new one. Basically one that doesn't exist. I remember when I was a boy reading, I used to get Ripley's Believe It or Not, little cartoons. And one of them said, Abraham was not a Jew, believe it or not. And I thought, that's kind of weird, but it's true. You might say he was the first one, I guess. And if you think about it, what, of what other human being could you ever say, this man was the first German, this man was the first Chinaman, the first Italian? Of what other person can you say that? This is a, an entirely new thing. And it is this notion that has profound spiritual application for all of us tonight and for all time for God's people. You take a child of God. The Bible says that God has called us in the New Testament in comparing us to Abraham, as Paul often does, that God has called us to go get thee out of the world. Get thee out of the world. Lose identification with who we were. We were human beings in the world. We were worldly. And then start a new journey. And our journey is to, guess what, a new country. And then he says, I want you to be identified not with the old, but be identified with the new. Now, the problem, of course, with Christians is that so many Christians have no intention of doing that. Now, mind you, they want to go to Canaan. They want to go to heaven. Mind you, they want God to be with them or an angel on their shoulder or whatever. They want the blessings of God. God bless my business and my efforts and so forth. But they don't want to leave the world behind and lose identification with the world and then be identified with the God of this book. Look again at verse 1. Get thee out of thy country, and then he says, and from thy kindred. You see, the first one's a new identity. This one is a whole new security. Now, folks, think about this. Suppose you were told to leave behind your people, all your people, your relatives, your friends, your loved ones. These are the people that make up what we call a support system. And then God told you to go out into a land to a people you had never seen before, neither the land or this people. Would that cause you some trepidation? Would that give you some fear? It's, it's difficult to stop suddenly leaning on all of the people and all the things that you used to lean on through your whole life and suddenly be called by God to this life. It's going to be now of faith. You've lost your supports. And now you only lean on him. I can only imagine what must have gone through Abraham's mind, Abram's mind. He was told to leave his lifelong comfort zone and just trust in God. I remind you, Abraham, Abram was wealthy. 
His household basically represented all of his holdings. You think fear is going to come in? Fear is an amazing thing. God has not given us the spirit of fear, right? But fear is an amazing thing. I know when I was a boy, and you've heard me tell this before, fear would come on me late at night, fifth grade, fourth grade, and I'd be lying in my room there in Satellite Beach, Florida, and, you know, we had to have the windows open. There wasn't air conditioning or the jealousy windows. And I remember, you know, hearing noises and looking out, and all of a sudden, familiar objects, they just looked ominous. That hibiscus bush over there that we used as third base, it looked like a crouching tiger. I'd stare at it. That's a tiger. It's a gremlin. I'd look at the headlights on our Rambler station wagon, and they looked like they were staring at me. I know, I have imagination, I guess. I don't know. but Every sound and every movement was suspect. Every shadow. And is there anything in the world less threatening, less substantial than a shadow? But when fear comes in, shadows are a threat. Every sound, no matter how innocuous, was somehow threatening. Only because nothing changed. It was dark, but nothing else changed. It was just fear in my heart. The creak of a door, the rustling of some leaves, a cat, a dog. And you know, it must have been this way for Abram who in the waning moments of those early morning darkness, I mean, imagine this is a different world. Some of it's wilderness. He must have seen lots of imposing shadows in this strange land, this barren desert. He's left his support system behind. And fear could have held him back. But it didn't. It didn't yet. And the only reason it didn't is three words. Abraham believed God. And whatever else he used to believe in, whatever else he used to lean on, whatever else used to be his security, he's left it behind by God's commandment. Now he's only trusting in God alone. This is the definition of the Christian life. Living by faith. Trust and obey. It's a whole new security. It is a security that is based only on the promises of God, which is all you need. Look at what God told Abraham in verse 2. And I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee, and I will make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. Now, you know this, but according to the book of Hebrews, which spends a lot of chunk of time on Abraham, that's the thing we just read that kept Abraham going. He believed in the promises of God. He trusted God's word. And then you'll notice he was also called called to a new responsibility. Go back. What did he say? Thy country is the new identity. Thy kindred is the new security. Thy father's house. Verse 1. The Lord had said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and from thy father's house unto a land. I will show thee and I will make of thee a great nation. You know what it means that Abraham left his father's house more than anything else? It means that instead of Instead of the responsibility of just his earthly father's house, he now has this calling and this responsibility of his heavenly father's house. And so do we. It's exactly the same for us. This is why God says, Abram, thou shalt be, thou shalt be a blessing. Now that you are saved, God doesn't just want to bless you. He wants to bless others through you. In fact, more than anything else, using the gospel, he wants to bless others through you. 
Here's what Abram did. Look at verse 7. And the Lord appeared unto Abram and said, Unto thy seed will I give this land. So he knows he's going to have to have seed. Keep that in the back of your mind. He's going to have to have a child. The Lord appeared unto Abram and said, Unto thy seed will I give this land. And there builded he, builded Abram, an altar unto the Lord who appeared unto him. There are a lot of people in the Bible, beloved, who built a lot of altars. Jacob did. Isaac did. Noah did. An altar is a testimony, a testament to a person's faith and devotion to Jehovah God. But nobody, go through the Bible and check it out. Nobody set up more altars than Abraham did. And in this case, Abraham, Abram, built an altar right smack in the middle of central Canaan, the hotbed of idolatry in that region. And in so doing, he was fulfilling his new responsibility as a believer, testifying publicly, publicly calling, the Bible says, upon the Lord. And I'm going to say this again, folks, that is exactly what Jesus wants us to do. He is our example held up over and over and over again. He hasn't called us to be popular with the Canaanites, the world. He hasn't called us to be liked by the Canaanites, the world. He hasn't called us to promote or to join in with the old country, the old house, the Canaanites. He has called us to be a blessing to them. And the only way, by the only way that we can be a blessing to them, because we were them, is by setting up an altar to God. An altar by which we are identified with our new responsibility, living a life of faith, of godliness, of goodness, that testifies to this world that Jesus is Lord. Now, that doesn't mean that all the Canaanites and all the Egyptians are going to accept it, because they're not. But it's still our responsibility. And in the end, it is the only way to be a blessing. Pastor, if I do that, if I do that, and I believe God, and I leave, and I go, and I claim, and I whatever, is God going to bless me? Are things going to really go well now? Well... Notice what happened right after Abram set up an altar. Verse 9, And Abram journeyed, going on still toward the south. And there was a famine in the land. Now wait a minute. There was a famine in the land. God called Abraham out of his country into a country with a famine? That's bad timing. And unfortunately, that famine caused Abraham's faith to falter. Just like mine has. And just like yours has. What you'll notice, though, is that God doesn't forsake Abram. And that God doesn't forsake you. As the promise is, lo, I'm with you always, even unto the end. And whether there's a famine in your life, beloved, or whether there's a feast in your life, one thing you have now, that you, once you have been called by faith, and you're a child of God, one thing you have now you never had, and which the world does not have. You have the promise of His presence. His power. Let me say this clearly. Abram, who became Abraham, wasn't perfect. We used to sing a song in junior church in Chicago. 
we had a huge ministry in Chicago and about 7,000 Hispanic kids from Chicago in our church. And we would sing this song, Father Abraham had many sons. How many of you know it? Father Abraham had many sons. We don't do it in junior church because five years of doing it in Chicago, I'm over that song. <laughs> but what I always noticed when we got new kids, so many times they would say, Father Abraham had many sins. Many sins had Father Abraham. And I remember listening to that and thinking, they're not wrong, because he wasn't perfect. I noticed something the other day when I was reading verse 4. So Abram departed as the Lord had spoken unto him, and Lot went with him. That's interesting. It doesn't say Abram departed with Lot as the Lord had spoken unto him, because he, he was supposed to leave all his family behind. Lot was his nephew. He was supposed to leave the kindred. And not surprisingly, Lot would become a constant thorn in his side and almost got Abraham killed in Sodom. But here's the thing. God still doesn't forsake him. God is not about to break his covenant, his promise, or forsake his own. God's not going to give up on him because he's not perfect. Nobody's perfect. God's not going to give up on you on your journey which is called a journey of faith. You know, we've all made the observation that one of the, one of the unique, even divine things about this book, the Word of God, is that, you know, when men write books about their heroes, they, they embellish. When men write books about, when, when cultists write books about their founders, their founders are perfect. They, they did no wrong. You, you show me a Scientologist who thinks L. Ron Hubbard wasn't the whack job that he was. They think he's amazing. Or Muhammad, whoever. They cover up the shortcomings, but not in God's record. So that all through the Bible, if somebody fails, one of the great patriarchs or an apostle, doesn't matter, if somebody fails, regardless of how important or beloved they are today, God recorded their whole story. So two weeks ago, we read about Noah's drunkenness. Now we read about Abraham's lapse of faith. You're going to see it in a moment. But in both instances, the failure is recorded right after some victory. For Noah, right after he got off the ark. For Abraham, it's right after he goes to Ur in obedience to God. Verse 10, and there was a famine in the land. This famine is going to test Abram's faith. God has already commanded Abram to dwell that's the word, dwell in the land of Canaan, to stay there. And you know, where God guides, he always provides. But you know, a famine is a tough trial. It's an especially tough trial for a wealthy man like Abram. It's very difficult to do without things once you've had things especially. For the very first time, the Bible is going to mention a word. It is the word Egypt. It's the first of over 600 references in the Bible. And as far as typology is concerned, ancient Egypt in the Bible is always a type of the world. It's wealth, it's wisdom, it's wickedness, it's worship are all alluring even to a child of God. And so it was for Abraham, this man like all of us, God got his eyes off of God. He chose what seems to be the expedient, the smart thing to do, the smart, safer thing. So you know what he does? He goes down to Egypt. 
read it, verse 10, and there was a famine in the land. And Abram went down into Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was grievous in the land. And it came to pass, when he was come near to enter to Egypt, he said unto Sarah his wife, Behold now, I know that thou art a fair woman to look on. He says, You're a babe, you're gorgeous, that's why I married you. Therefore, verse 12, it shall come to pass, when the Egyptians shall see thee, they shall say, This is his wife, and they will kill me, but they will save you alive. What kind of thinking is that? Now, maybe he understood the Egyptians. He said, they're going to see you, you're gorgeous. They're going to say, we don't need him, but she's, she's beautiful. So we'll keep her alive. Flattering, except then he lies. Say, I pray thee, verse 13, say, I pray thee, that thou art my sister, that it may be well with me for thy sake, and my soul shall live because of thee. Wow. Is this faith? Is this trusting God? This is not Abram's finest hour. Because, you know, even though Sarah was, in fact, his half-sister, what he is proposing is a full deception that is wrought with all kinds of danger for Sarah. Sarah herself. There's no way she felt good about this. Oh, what a tangled web we weave when first we practice to deceive. So it's bad enough that he's already lost faith and he went down to Egypt thinking, well, God can't provide for me in Canaan. Why can't he? He told you to stay there. So it's bad enough that he's gone down there, but now he's adding to the danger by lying to the leader of that nation. And here's what happens. You know the story, but we must be reminded of these things. Verse 14. And it came to pass that when Abram was come come into Egypt, the Egyptians beheld the woman that she was very fair. He he wasn't lying. She was beautiful. The princes also of Pharaoh saw her and commended her before Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. Man. Because it's his sister. You talk about a plan backfiring. Abram did not count on Pharaoh being the one Pharaoh himself, who had all the power to take who he wanted. So what's he going to do? He lies to the ruler of Egypt. Pharaoh gives Abram, because he's got such a beautiful sister, he gives him all kinds of sheep and oxen and servant and camels because he's so happy, I'm going to give your brother something. He's in trouble and she's in trouble. And it's all his fault. But once again, the mercy of God. Verse 17, and the Lord plagued Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarah, Abram's wife. In other words, God, in his mercy, steps in for Abram's sake and Sarah's, and Pharaoh realizes it. Verse 18 says, and Pharaoh called Abram and said, what is it thou hast done unto me? Why dost thou not tell me that she was thy wife? Why saidst thou she is my sister? So I might have taken her to meet a wife. Now therefore, behold, thy wife, take her, And go thy way. And Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him, and he sent him away and his wife and all that he had. Wow. If Abraham's Abram's actions here are any indication of what's to come, I don't think this chosen nation, these chosen people are doing a very good job of being a light to the world. Pharaoh probably thought, if these are believers, I don't hope I don't see any more of them. So God delivers him. 
Abram goes back to Canaan, a sadder, wiser man. And this happens in chapter 13. Let's read it, shall we? And Abram went up out of Egypt, he and his wife, and all that he had, and Lot with him, there's Lot again, into the south. And Abram was very rich in cattle, in silver, and in gold. That means he was diversified, his finances. And he went on his journeys from the south, even to Bethel, unto the place where he, his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Hai, unto the place of the altar, which he had made there at the first, and there Abram called on the name of the Lord. Here it is, back to Bethel. Abram, who had faltered in his faith and nearly lost his life, or his wife's life, who nearly lost all that he had for his lack of faith, he does the one thing, beloved. He does the one thing that all of us can do when we falter. That all of us are commanded to do in the New Testament when we falter. He goes back to the altar. He goes back to Bethel. He calls on the name of the Lord. He starts over, if you will, and the goodness and the grace of God meets him there. It always will. It'll meet you there. And the proof that Abram is humbled and back in fellowship with God is seen in the text that follows. Let's look at it. Verse 5, And Lot also, which went with Abram, had flocks and herds and tents, and the land was not able to bear them that they might dwell together. For their substance was great so that they could not dwell together and there was a strife between the herdmen of Abram's cattle and the herdmen of Lot's cattle and the Canaanite and the Perizzite dwelled then in the land and Abram said unto Lot let there be no strife I pray thee between me and thee and between my herdmen and thy herdmen for we are brethren is not the whole land before thee separate thyself I pray thee from me if thou wilt take the left hand then I will go to the right or if thou depart to the right hand then I will go to the left now follow this carefully these are details, but they're in the Bible for a reason. If you've ever wondered why Abraham is called the father of the faithful or the friend of God, which he is called, if you've ever wondered why Abraham became such a man that it was considered so great that in spite of his failures, in spite of his fears, and you'll see some more, it's because he grew in his faith, he left this altar, and he started becoming this man. What do you mean, this man? Well, Lot is Abram's nephew. He owes Abram a lot for taking him in. He's under Abram, socially and spiritually. The land itself of Canaan was promised to Abram, not to Lot. But to Abram, we see these, these reactions. Abram says, Lot... Let there be no strife between us. This is not good. When the Perizzites and the Canaanites are out there, we shouldn't be fighting. We're related. This isn't right. There should be peace between us. And you know, that spiritually minded attitude I've seen in innumerable Christians. Believer after believer, all these years, I've seen many of God's people have that kind of wisdom and that kind of attitude. Christians know what to say. But... It's what he does. It's what he does next that I've only witnessed occasionally with the spiritually mature who trust God. That's verse 8. Abram said unto Lot, Let there be no strife, I pray thee, between me and thee, and between my herdmen and thy herdmen, for we are brethren. Is not the whole land before thee? Separate thyself, I pray thee, from me. If thou wilt take the left hand, then I will go to the right. 
or if thou to the right hand, then I will go to the left. Wow. In other words, he did not say what is more typical, let there be no strife because we're brethren, so as the elder and the one with the promise, I'll choose first and then you choose the land second so we can get along. What he said was, you choose. This is Jesus. This is love your neighbors yourself. This is the royal law. Before the royal law was written. He says, Lot, you choose. Nephew, I'll take what you don't take. He could have said, it's my right. I've got my rights. I deserve this. But he sacrificed his own rights in order to buy peace. That's one reason, and you're going to see more in the weeks ahead, that's one reason why he became the friend of God. He's not scheming this time. He's not wringing his hands and trying to manipulate this time. He's also not afraid. He's not ambitious. He's living by faith. But Lot is our other example because he is clearly living by sight. Look at verse 10. And Lot lifted up his eyes. Now, why didn't he say no, uncle? Because he's Lot. And Lot lifted up his eyes and beheld all the plain of Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere. Before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, even as the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, as thou comest unto Zoar. Then Lot chose. Then Lot chose him all the plain of Jordan, and Lot journeyed east, and they separated themselves the one from the other. Abram dwelled in the land of Canaan, and Lot dwelled in the cities of the plain, and pitched his tent toward Sodom. But the men of Sodom were wicked and sinners before the Lord exceedingly. You know, it's interesting. Hear me carefully. It's interesting that the one glaring difference between Abram and Lot is that Abram had an altar. But you'll go through the book of Genesis, look at every occasion he's mentioned, you will find that Lot never had one. Down in verse 18, Then Abram removed his tent and came and dwelled in the plain of Mamre, which is in Hebron, and there and built there an altar unto the Lord. Abram was always building altars, except when he was in Egypt. No mention of an altar there. Lot, on the other hand, never had an altar. So that, follow this carefully again, this is the Christian life, so that when it came time for him to choose, when it came time to him to make a decision, and it was the most important decision of his life, his whole family depended on this decision, there's no altar There's no devotions, there's no prayer or quiet time with God, and there's no spiritual discernment. You may have noticed in verse 10, his concern was not, is this a good place for my children? He didn't say, wow, I'm going to look at that land. Is that a good place to raise children? He said, is that a good place to raise cattle? He saw with his eyes, no discernment. Now having separated himself from the influence of his godly uncle without an altar of his own, Lot pitches his tent toward a city that is scheduled for destruction. You see, Pastor Lot didn't know that. No. But neither did Abraham. Not yet. The only one who knew it was scheduled for destruction was God. So what mattered is whether or not he was walking by faith in the will of God. Abram was. 
And because he was in fellowship with God, he was divinely restrained from making the wrong choice. Think about that. Go back in the story sometime, look at it, and realize why he never went to those beautiful plains. God let him. You can never, ever lose when you trust God and leave the choices with him. In fact, verse 11, Then Lot chose him all the plain of Jordan, and Lot journeyed east and separated themselves. So he got to go east. But look at verse 14. The Lord said unto Abram, after that Lot was separated from him, Lift out now thine eyes and look to the place where thou art northward, southward, eastward, westward. All the land which thou seest, to thee will I give it. It's always better to trust God. Have you ever noticed in the Bible that God's arithmetic is almost never like ours? With us, one minus one leaves nothing. With God, one minus one leaves everything. That's what Jesus said in Matthew 19. In everyone that hath forsaken houses or brethren or sisters or father or mother or lands for my sake shall receive a hundredfold. You can't lose when you just trust in God. I want you to notice that the difference between Abraham and Lot given by the Holy Spirit of God. If you go home and read this text tonight, for time we won't read it now. The difference is this. It's better for God to give you something than for you to take it. Lot lifted up his own eyes and he took that land. Abraham waited on God and he received. He received that land. One of the reasons why we are out here on this property instead of four or five other places is because we had deacons are here tonight. Leaders back in those days, 20 years ago, said, let's just not do this. Let's wait on the Lord. Let's pray. And it became far better than any of us ever imagined. All of this is based, that we're reading, on one thing. Abraham believed God. All he ever had to do was believe God. If you go back to that famine, as we said a moment ago, he would have never gone down to Egypt. He would have never put his life in danger and his wife in danger and all of that. None of that would have happened if he would have just believed God, trusted that God would provide him. How about the fact that, you know, God told him, you're going to have seed and it's going to be a great nation. If Abraham simply believed that one promise, he would have never feared any of these things. The only bad things that ever happened to Abraham occurred during his lapses of faith. It was almost certainly when he was down in Egypt that he met Hagar and brought her back. And she had a son named Ishmael. All of the bad things happened because of a lapse of faith. And I'm telling you tonight, from this point until you get to this point, the very last book, I'm telling you, you read it, you'll find that pretty much the root cause of every single thing that is bad in our lives is not trusting God. And everything that is good in our lives occurs because we believe God. Pastor, I know what God told Abraham to do, what Abraham was supposed to believe. But what about me? What am I supposed to believe that he has said? Beloved, everything. Everything that he said about pride. Everything that he has said about the home, not what Egypt says of the world. Everything that he has said about finances. Everything he has said about the church. Everything that pertains unto life and godliness, Peter said, we have in the scriptures. And just as with Abraham. When we don't obey in faith, we get in trouble. 
It causes us trouble that God did not intend for us to be in. But everything we obey and believe in faith brings us blessings. In spite of Abraham's lapse of faith, God's redemptive plan that we saw at the very beginning of this series is coming to pass. His promise to Eve way back in Genesis 2 and 3, his promise to all mankind that he would send a redeemer, a savior, you can see it. You can see it working through one man who simply has to believe God. And yes, what you're going to see, God is calling out a people. Satan is going to do everything he can in his power to destroy those people. And God is still going to send prophets to those people. He's going to raise up from them the son of David, a savior who is Christ the Lord. Some of you may remember the Dead Sea Scrolls years ago in the Qumran that was just, you know, discovered in the 40s and how that became all the rage in the 50s and the 60s and the 70s because they would continue to find them. One of the scrolls was wrapped up and sealed. It was so old, thousands of years old, two, over 2,000 years old. It was sealed and so fragile they couldn't unroll it. They would destroy it. So they x-rayed it. After they x-rayed it, after they um, put it in a solution and so forth, they took it apart painstakingly. It took two years, two years to take it apart piece by piece. When they finally did, the very first scroll that they, that they did this to, the first word in that scroll was a name, and it was Abraham. That account, that scroll, is an account of Abraham's sojourn into Egypt and the commentary that that scribe wrote on Genesis 13. Whoever that Hebrew scholar was, or scribe, over 2,000 years ago, they wrote in the commentary that God's omniscient finger is seen in the life of Abraham and it would someday, one day, point to the true Messiah. That scribe could not have imagined how true his observations were. Jesus said in John 8:56, Your father Abraham saw my day and was glad. He saw it by faith and rejoiced. And the, and the verse before that, Jesus looks at all those people and he says, hey, can I tell you something? Before Abraham was, I am. You glad you're saved tonight? Amen. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, please help us remember and be reminded and be reminded over and again that the just live by faith. That there will be famines. There will be enemies. There will be wars as Abraham was involved in as well. There will be tears and sorrows. There will be a barren womb. But help us remember, Father, that we live by faith. If we believe you and your promises and all of your promises in your word would apply to us, we can claim so that whatever happens next week in this country, whatever happens this fall, if it references war or COVID or a famine or anything, Lord, please help this body of believers trust you, to trust you always so that we can be a blessing until Jesus returns again. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.